Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Well, if today's Me First culture leaves you feeling a little jaded at times, Laura Schroff's true story of hope, friendship, and adventure will leave you knowing that one person can indeed make a difference, might even restore your faith in humanity. She joins us in the second half of the show with the new edition of her number one New York Times bestselling memoir, An Invisible Thread. First, what if the secret to resilience and joy is the one thing we're often taught to avoid at any cost? Well, Karen Rinaldi joins us to share insight into why it's okay to suck at something and how embracing your shortcomings can open you up to adventure and rewire your brain in positive ways. Karen Rinaldi has worked in the publishing industry for over two decades. In 2012, she founded the imprint Harper Wave at HarperCollins. The feature film Maggie's Plan is based on her novel, The End of Men. And she's been published in the New York Times, Oprah.com, Time and uh, other publications. She says she's far from perfect and she's not working on it. And that will make sense when I tell you the title of her new book. It's great to suck at something, the unexpected joy of wiping out and what it can teach us about patience, resilience and the stuff that really matters. Karen Rinaldi, welcome. Hi, Vicky. Thank you for having me on. My pleasure. Well, you're such an accomplished woman. Obviously, you founded, as I said, Harper Wave at HarperCollins six years ago. You've sustained a 20-year career in publishing industry, which has always been very competitive and, and gone through enormous changes over the past decade. Um, you, a feature film made on your book, you'd think that you'd be writing about how to be successful here. <laughs> so, so why go in the opposite direction? Um. Wow, nobody's asked me that before, and that's a really funny question because, you know, I think what happens is that we we want to bang on about what we're good at because it makes us feel good, and I think that's an okay thing to do. But I don't think I think what happens is that's only half of the story, and what we often don't see um, with people who are successful, um, at least from the outside looking in is that we look at it and we say, Oh, look at that person. It was, you know, they just did this, this, and this, and things went well, their movie got made, their book got published. They, you know, have it a, a popular radio show. You know, it always looks easier from the outside. And I'm really interested, um, personally, professionally in the journey and the struggle. And I, 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 instead of looking at it as something that's um, in the negative, I actually think that that's where all the good stuff is hiding, right? Like all that learning and iterating and failing, frankly, and making mistakes and getting up and doing it again. That's where the human stories, that's what makes uh, a person, right? And it also, what I have found in my own little story, which I'll tell you a little bit about, but it's where a lot of the joy is hiding as well. Right. 
So I, I think this is such an uh, interesting book and I really enjoyed it because I too um, in, am interested in not just how people are successful, but those, those challenges we go through and why we stick at something when we, when we really do suck at it. I was telling you before we started, I suck at snowboarding, but every year my goal is I'm going to get good at snowboarding and I still suck at it. And there's hope, there's hope in those plans, <laughs> right? Right, right. <laughs> And, and so one of the things that you, uh, your journey really is about surfing. So tell us a little bit about that and why that's so important to you and why you stuck with it. Well, it's, it's, it's the idea that surfing is, you know, looks so easy when you're watching someone surf a wave. Usually their videos, their videos are professionals and it looks well, not so simple, but it, it, it looks like, oh, I, I could probably do that. Anybody who's kind of physically active, you paddle out, you get on the board, you pop up, you ride the wave. And of course, it's possibly, it's one of the hardest things in the world to do. Absolutely. And um, to make matters worse, I didn't start until I was way past uh, the age when um, I should even have bothered trying to start. I was 40 years old, um, which is laughable. And so I decided I'd always wanted to surf and I was going to try it once. I thought, let me try it. I'll get it out of the way. And then I can at least say I tried it because I'd always been compelled by it, but frankly, too, too afraid to try. And I did take one lesson. And that lesson really changed the course of my entire life because I was so enthralled by it. Um, that I just, I was literally hooked, but then, then it took me, and this is also laughable. It took me five years of struggling on my own to actually catch a wave. And I don't mean to catch white water and stand up and mm -hmm. do all that stuff, but I mean to pedal out past the break, to drop in on a decent sized wave and make the turn and ride the face of the wave. It took me five years and and five years of failing and falling and, and, and being out there alone and struggling. And I used to ask myself, why am I doing this? Is this folly? Am I mad? I mean, what? and I realized I was doing it because it was where I felt the most freedom. And you would think that there wouldn't be freedom in the failure. But what I, as I thought about it and kept trying, I thought, nobody needs me to surf well. I'm not getting paid for it. There's no transaction here. It's not pretty, but who cares? And I was able to let go a lot of the like shibboleths of, of success and mastery and goal setting and reward getting by just saying, I'm going to do it just because it feels good to be in the water. And when I did catch a wave, I mean, it feels amazing. And I still live for those moments when I catch waves and I, I love the feeling, but I still struggle. So now it's 17 or 18 years later, I, I, uh, focused a lot of my life so that I could surf um, and, you know, took my free time. And I basically rejiggered my life. It's not that I, you know, I still I'm in publishing, I'm an executive, and I write and I have a family and I do all that. But my free time is, is centered around surfing. And it's mm -hmm. given me more. So the thing that I am the least good at, by far, and everybody who knows me, <laughs> who's seen me do it will attest to it. This is not a humble brag. I really suck at it. Um, it still brings me the most joy. And that's why I wrote the book. And I thought there is something in this. And I, again, it's, it's that freedom and the, the humility it takes to keep trying. And I found that I am freest and happiest when I am out there sucking at surfing, not at doing the stuff I do well. Isn't know, that interesting? That is really interesting. Uh, and you're, uh, the one thing that astounded me as well is that you are, you have a fear of the ocean. 
<laughs> yeah, that's probably why it took so long to start. I am I am equally terrified and compelled um, by the ocean. I mean, I, I, I've had dreams of waves um, that it's all my life since I've been a little girl. So the dream was that a wave would come and I would become one with it and I would breathe underwater and it would be amazing. And I felt very um, at peace. And then my nightmares, which would happen, all, you know, they would alternate. My nightmare was a wave would come and it would overwhelm me and I would nearly die. You don't die in your dreams, but I would nearly die. And those, that tension um, stayed with me forever. And it wasn't until I had children, weirdly enough, I had children that I, I let go of some of those old fears um, and was able to, to at least try it. And I have to say that there is some trepidation every time I paddle out. I surf alone. I'll be in the ocean all alone sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I do put that fear and come overcoming that fear because it's an irrational fear. I mean, I don't go out and alone in waves of consequence, but that irrational fear is something when you get your head around it and you're confronting it also gives you something back. It also gives you confidence and yes. it, it, it makes you have to confront those fears, whatever they are, because they're atavistic, right? They're old fears. They're, they're deep, deep way back in your brain. Right. And I like having to confront that because what happens is it gives you practice. My, my point is that it gives you practice um, for the stuff that really matters, right? The stuff yes. that you have you, you know, that you should be afraid of, or that you need to be careful with, or um, the things that you shouldn't suck at, but heaven knows you will, <laughs> even, right, even right. the important stuff every once in a while. And so the whole surfing um, experience for me gives me the material that I need and the, the patience and the humility and all of these things that I get to use um, otherwise in my life. And it's just awesome being out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I definitely can relate to that because I have what I call a very healthy respect for the ocean. <laughs> so, yes, and I, I love to true. I love to kayak and I love to sail. But there are times when I've I once went on a, a kayaking trip to watch whales and I was like, please don't let any whales come up. <laughs> because oh, I, yeah. so... I mean, if you're in a kayak and a whale breaches, you're you're. Yeah, that's terrifying. Also wondrous, though. Right. I mean, it's not sort of oh. what you want to happen and what you don't want to happen at the same time. Yeah. Right? It, it is absolutely breathtaking. And it's, it was worth the fear factor. Let me tell you. Yes. Yes. So one of the things you, you say in the beginning of your book is that first times are overrated. Tell us what you mean by that. I well, I tie that also to a sense of nostalgia, right? So I feel like we put on and and people there are different studies that say different things that nostalgia is, you know, a very positive thing. We look back at our past and we remember the good stuff. Uh, we put rose-colored glasses on, but I also think nostalgia is a way of saying it was better then. And first times are tied to that. Uh, so so there's, there's a nostalgia piece, which I can get to in a bit. But the first time issue is I think when we start out, we go, oh, wouldn't it be great to learn how to play guitar, learn how to sing, learn how to dance, learn how to throw pottery or surf or snowboard for that matter, play golf. You know, the first time you do something that is harder than it looks because everything is harder than it looks. Right. It's, it's, you know, it's going to suck. My thing is, it's just, it's going to suck. You're not going to master it. Not the first, actually not the fifth, not the 10th, you know, the 10,000th time maybe. But so my thing is that we think first times are overrated and we kind of want to put that 
that, oh, I remember the first time I did X, Y, or Z. It was so great. And you're going like, you know, the first time I took a wave, I mean, I was in a wave that was ankle high. I was on the surfboard the size of a door. My bathing suit fell completely off my body. I was out of shape and middle-aged, and it was so not pretty. And if I look back <laughs> on that and I went, oh, it was awesome. I mean, the feeling was good. And it, and it, and it got me kind of going, oh, yeah, I can stand up on a board. I think I need more of this. But, you know, it wasn't it wasn't me doing the carving up and down a wave. And it took me actually, I still don't do that. <laughs> so I've never been able to really lie to myself about it. Um, but I think that first times is we go we go around the first time we don't master it. We feel humiliated. We feel frustrated. We don't we, we criticize ourselves so much that we don't go and do it the second time or the third or the fourth. Or the third and the fourth and the fifth time are hard, and we and we we move away from it because we can't get that critic out of our head. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, forget that first time, like forget it, like just you know, let yourself fail and just laugh at yourself and have a good time. And I feel like if we let go of that um, idea that we have to succeed out the gate, and a lot of people I've, I've been having conversations have been saying, I love doing things I'm good at. I'm not. I'm not as comfortable doing right, things I'm right. not good at. It's like, well, how how many things can you be good at? Because you had to start somewhere with right, those things you're right, good at, right? right? Yeah. Well, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, I, this kind of leads into what I wanted to talk about next, which is perfectionism. Um, oh, yeah. So, um, and we're going to bust that myth there because I grew up with that myth and it's a hard one to, oh. to bust. But um, we'll be back in just a minute. We have to take a quick break here. My guest is Karen Rinaldi. She's joining us via Skype today. Her new book is called It's Great to Suck at Something. And you're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. You know, despite the bad news we hear every day, there are people and organizations focused on making a difference. And one of those organizations is right here, the Seattle Beagle Rescue. It's dedicated to saving homeless beagles, placing them with loving, committed families. Beagles arrive at Seattle Beagle Rescue from shelters, from the streets, and from private homes. And because it's a volunteer-run organization, they depend entirely on the kind hearts and generosity of the community. Learn how you can make a difference by helping to save beagles, go to Facebook at Seattle Beagle Rescue or call 425-381-3792. That's 425-381-3792. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, visit our website pdf.org or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. Hi, I'm your host, Smokey Cole Bear. Filling in for Smokey, because after 75 years of... Only you can prevent wildfires. Turns out there's much more to say. Nearly 90% of wildfires are caused by us humans being careless dumping our used barbecue coals willy-nilly. Guess the song was wrong. We did start the fire. That's why I respect Mother Nature and her trees, whether coniferous or new car scented. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. <laughs> 
On the next Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, Jared Yates Sexton examines a sensitive hot-button topic in today's culture with his new book, The Man They Wanted Me to Be, Toxic Masculinity and a Crisis of Our Own Making. We'll end the show on a different note with award-winning writer Jody Helmer, who shares how to grow and harvest flavorful teas in your own backyard. Catch us live on Mondays at noon Pacific and again Fridays at 6 a.m. Find more details at conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Ordinary people leading extraordinary lives. Advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. On the path to good health and well-being, Alternative Talk 1150 is the station for you. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And my guest is Karen Rinaldi. She's worked in the publishing industry for over two decades and uh, very successful in her own life. And she's written a great book. It's called It's Great to Suck at Something, The Unexpected Joy of Wiping Out and What It Can Teach Us About Patience, Resilience and the Stuff That Really Matters. Um, And I want to get into that in a little bit with you, Karen. But first of all, I want to talk about perfectionism. Um, because, you know, we were chatting during the break. You said it's one of the things you hear most from people. And I grew up with that. My, you know, parents were athletes and, and perfectionists in their own way. And the story I grew up with was don't, you know, if you're going to do something, do it well or don't do it at all. And of course, you know, as a kid, I kind of misinterpreted that a little. So tell us what you're hearing about perfectionism. Yeah, so I think one of the one of the hot buttons of this book is definitely where people respond and say, you know, oh, you know, I could never, you know, embrace that because I'm a perfectionist. And I've always had this theory that the perfectionist tag is really just a protection, right? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's it's basically putting um a, 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 a putting everyone on notice that I'm not going to try for fear of failing. So it speaks of fear. It speaks of our unwillingness to see ourselves and put ourselves in the world as struggling, as being vulnerable. We're afraid of being humiliated. And, and really, like, so, so I think what happens is that perfectionism, from a, from, a psycholo- from a psychology point of view, is striving, right? So I think that's what your parents were telling you, is not don't do it if you're not going to do it perfectly, yep. but you should always strive to do well, which is a very different thing than being perfect at it. I strive at surfing and I suck at it. I will never be perfect. I ride some waves well, but I'll never be perfect at it. And I'm okay with that. And so what happens is that if you look at uh, mental wellness, actually, people, the people who are comfortable with their imperfections are mentally well and healthy, more so than people who struggle because they see themselves as perfectionists and therefore stop themselves before they even start. And really what that is, is, a, is again, it goes back to that self-criticism, is I, I can't bear to see myself as anything left, less than perfect right. because if I'm not, and I think at the end of it, I mean, there's this, we could have a whole radio show just on this topic, but I think at the end of it, you carry it all the way through. If I'm not perfect, I'm not worthy of love. Yeah. I, I believe that that's the calculus people make. And I want to say, no, you are worthy of loving your beautiful, imperfect self. In fact, 
it's even it's more beautiful the imperfections because it's real and it's authentic and it shows you trying and failing but then trying again that's beautiful and, and I, the perfection yeah go ahead no go ahead <laughs> I, I was gonna say and i also think because you talked about freedom in the first part and you talk about yeah. it in the book quite a bit and and embracing that freedom to be bad at something is it is really freeing oh and and bad you know when i say it's it you know suck at something people see some videos of me surfing they'll go oh but you can surf and I'll say yeah but I, I can surf but I don't surf well and in somebody's eyes I surf okay in somebody else's eyes most people's eyes I suck at surfing yeah. the point is it's like who's to judge I don't it doesn't even matter it's you it, it doesn't matter what anybody else is saying it's how you feel so if you can let go we you meaning the person me you you know the listeners can let go of that myth it's a myth that perfectionism that mm -hmm. that we can be perfect and well you know what i say you know and i've been writing about this too outside of my book but it's like i'm not i'm not per i'm not perfect at anything i don't know about everybody else but there's not one thing i can point to and say yeah i do that thing i'm perfect at it <laughs> right no right way. right there's, that's a lie and i think once you let that go you go yeah i'm pretty good and i'm pretty good at some things yeah uh, and i really suck at other things and, and it, what uh, you want to do is be grounded about how you're looking at that yes absolutely and often it's because we're comparing ourselves with others and there's a great line that i go to when i get find myself you know maybe in that position it's from the poem desiderata and it says something like do not compare yourselves with others for you will become either vain or bitter <laughs> Oh, well, that's that is that's perfect. That is totally perfect. And, the, the, and also, I, yeah, that why would and, and what's the why are we compelled to do that? That's just another way of telling ourselves that we're not good enough. Right. We don't, you know. Right. There's a, a great quote in the beginning of your book, Ethel Barrymore by Ethel Barrymore. Um, yes, I I, love you that. grow up the day you have your first real laugh at yourself. And I think we need to do that more. We need to laugh at ourselves a lot more than we do. We take ourselves so seriously these days, it seems. Yeah. And I think there's like, you know, there's a lot of critics out there, right? There yep. are a lot of haters. There are a lot of trollers. There are a lot of people, you know, a lot of people, you know, throwing, you know, thrusting their slings and arrows at us. And we have to be able to just say, that's your problem. That's not my problem. Right. And, and also laugh at ourselves. But what's important about what Ethel Barrymore said is she's not saying laugh at others. And I think if you can laugh at yourself, right, if you can forgive yourself for messing up, if you can embrace sucking at something, if you can appreciate the freedom that it brings, it's very hard then to turn around and point to somebody else and say, yeah, that person sucks at that and laugh at them. Yeah, that's not that this is supposed to be a bulwark work against that um, reaction, because once you forgive yourself, you kind of look at everybody else and you can revel in the joy that they're having in their own suckiness and, and try to take away the, take, take the teeth out of the bullies and the haters and the people out there who are, you know, pointing the finger at everybody else because they're really just pointing the finger at themselves. Yeah, right? and they're and probably you, not even trying themselves, right? <laughs> so. No, I think, I think they don't. It's sad. It, actually, it makes me sad because they're, they're, you know how they feel about themselves by what they say about others. Yes. I want to talk. Uh, we've only got about five minutes, so we're four minutes yeah. left here. But I, I definitely want to talk about neuroplasticity, neuroplasticity um, because we hear such a lot about it. We've talked about it on the show before. You call it the blind phenomenon. Tell us about that, if you would. Well, I think that 
I don't. I mean, I'm not a scientist, right? So I'm just. A, I'm a reader. I'm a publisher. I'm a. I, I'm a thinker. I. I. You know. I. I'm, I'm sort of. I dabble in everything. But neuroplasticity is a really awesome concept that is has really picked up popularity because what people used to say is that the brain as it atrophied as you got older, right? Like you can't, you know, that old saying, you can't teach an old dog new mm -hmm. tricks, which is just actually not true at all. Right. In fact, your brain constantly is constantly changing. And when you challenge it, right, it, you know, you, you know, you can keep learning. And so what, ha and, and the brain works with pathways, right? So there's an old uh, Hebb's law, which says neurons, neurons that fire together, wire together. What that means is that when you create a cycle of either positive thinking or you're trying or outlook or framing, whatever that is, right, a positive cycle, it will feed itself, and this is putting it in rudimentary terms, but you know, it will feed itself and create more positive feedback. But because the brain is, you know, doesn't judge one thing or another, if you're feeding the negative loop, it will, those neurons, that will fire and wire together so that it's like, I think of it as like tracks or grooves. You dig a deeper groove. The more negative, the more negative. It just, it feeds itself and the groove gets thicker and th deeper and deeper. But your brain is such a wondrous thing that if you shift your perspective, right? If you turn your perspective and you retrain it, it will learn to, you know, to loop in a more positive way. And it's not like I'm stuck in a loop and I'll never get out of it because that's what my brain does. It's like, no, your brain is plastic, meaning it can grow, it can move, it can change. And that is one of the most empowering concepts. And we can learn new things. And we can reframe that lie of perfectionism into the joy of self-forgiveness and adventure. Mm, right. Let's, yeah. let's, let's rewire that. Let's change that story. You know, let's, um, let's, let's look at a new way of framing that out. And then all of a sudden you have all this freedom and any, and then anything is possible. I think people get stuck in ruts and I understand why, because God knows I've been stuck in on myself. And I think we all get stuck in ruts and it's like that rut though, you, the only way out of it is, you know, I would say divert it to a good rut, <laughs> you know, yes, to a do something rut. different, it's simple, <laughs> but it's possible, but it is possible. And you're that, you know, physio, you know, neurochemically it's possible, which is the really good news. So the title of the book is It's Great to Suck at Something, The Unexpected Joy of Wiping Out and what it can really teach, what it can teach us about patience, resilience and the stuff that really matters. So we've got 30 seconds here, Karen, tell us what you've learned about the stuff that really matters. Oh, it's, you know, it's kind of simple in a way. It goes back to connection with others. It goes back to loving yourself and just love in general. When you allow yourself to just do something with joy in your heart, you invite people into your life and you're able to give back to people. And I think really at the end of the day, it's about love because that's all there is. Yeah, that's all there is, right? <laughs> I love all it. All there is. Well, th I thank you so much for being with us today. And your website is your name, right? Karen Rinaldi? Um, it's it, it's krinaldi.com. Yeah, K just the K. KRinaldi.com. Yeah, and there's suckatsomething.com too. You can you can go to either one of them. Okay. Thanks so much for one, being with us. All right. Really appreciate Thanks, it. Nikki. Thank you so much. And the book again, it's great to suck at something. And we're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, uh, we'll be talking about an invisible thread. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. 
I couldn't speak or walk. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a stroke are far from silent. Get back on your treatment plan or talk with your doctor to create a plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. Head to toe, everything's changed. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Let's see if I... I guess that... (sighs) This just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing. Writing it, another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need. Whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. Oh, yeah, that could work. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. You know, despite the bad news we hear every day, there are people and organizations focused on making a difference. And one of those organizations is right here, the Seattle Beagle Rescue. It's dedicated to saving homeless beagles, placing them with loving, committed families. Beagles arrive at Seattle Beagle Rescue from shelters, from the streets, and from private homes. And because it's a volunteer-run organization, they depend entirely on the kind hearts and generosity of the community. Learn how you can make a difference by helping to save beagles, go to Facebook at Seattle Beagle Rescue or call 425-381-3792. That's 425-381-3792. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations live.net that's conversationslive.net today bringing good vibes to the puget sound and the world alternative talk 1150 and welcome back everyone you're listening to conversations live with vicky st Clair. so coming up next i'm talking with uh, laura shroff based on a true story uh, and it's called an invisible thread let me tell you a little bit about laura She's a former advertising executive who helped launch three of the most successful startups in the Time Inc. history, uh, InStyle Magazine, Teen People, and People Style Watch. She's also worked as the New York division manager at People Magazine. And since the release of An Invisible Thread, she's been a keynote speaker at over 300 schools, libraries, charities, and bookstores. And, of course, she's here to uh, talk about the book and encourage people to find 
their own invisible thread. So we're going to learn much more about that in a moment. Laura Schroff, welcome. Well, thank you so much. I so appreciate being on your show. And we're glad to have you here. And I always, since I'm a writer myself and do ghost writing sometimes, I like to give a shout out to your writer who worked with you, Alex uh, Trenowski. Trenowski, yes. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I always give Alex credit because, um, you know, we've worked on all of my books together. And I, I almost, you know, he's my co-writer and it's, it's been a wonderful experience. Right, right. So this is based on a true story. It's this is a different edition, so let's let's just step back a little bit and talk about the original book. Uh, it's Certainly, s- same title, right? Yeah, same exact title. Yeah, yeah. an invisible thread. Um, and what's the difference between that and this? This is this new one. This new edition is for young readers, so eight years and up. I read. Yeah. So how did you approach this differently? Well, we had to approach it differently because Maurice, you know, he. When I met Maurice back in 1986, he was 11 years old, and um, he was, I was walking up West 56th Street, and as I passed him, he said, excuse me, lady, do you have any spare change? I'm hungry. And originally I said no and kept walking, but then what resonated with me were the words, I'm hungry. So I went back to him, and I asked if I could take him to lunch. And we had lunch, and while I was sitting there, he just seemed like the sweetest little kid. We took a walk, and then um, we went our separate ways. And throughout the week, I couldn't seem to get my mo- get him out of my mind. So on Thursday night, I left work a little bit early with the hopes of maybe seeing him. And he thought maybe if he stood on that same corner, he would see me again, I and I would offer to take him to dinner. So we did. And while we had din- were having dinner, I said, I've got a great idea. Why don't we meet on the corner next Monday night, and I'll take you out to dinner again. And we wound up meeting every Monday for the next four years and hundreds of times thereafter. So he lived at the Bryan Hotel, which was one of the most dangerous shelter hotels in all of New York City. Unfortunately, his father left when he was only six, and his father was a drug addict and a drug dealer and, you know, a thug. And Maurice would call him that as well. And his mother, whom he loved dearly, was addicted to heroin and crack. So... That was his side of the story. I, too, came from a very volatile childhood where when my father drank, I always say when he was great, he was wonderful. But when he drank, his darkest demons would come out and he would become extremely violent, not only with my mother, but also with my poor younger brother, Frank. So for the, the, the big book, the adult book, we were able to include long-winded answers, so I apologize for that. But we were we included all of the details of Maurice's backstory as well as my backstory. Mm. However, when we were approaching the book for children between the ages of 8 and 12, we had to be very mindful of this target audience. So, for example, um, for Maurice's mom, we never said that she was a heroin and crack addict, but we said that she had a sickness. And for me, I talked about fact that my father was an alcoholic and that he would go into rages, but I didn't get into the detail. So in, in, in essence, the book has really been, the heart of the story has stayed the same, but some of the harsh details have been eliminated right. um, from the book. Makes sense. And it's our feeling that some children will put two and two together, but I felt that it was really important that the parents have these conversations with the children and that it wasn't my place to 
introduce these kinds of issues to children as young as eight years old. Right. I mean, even a child seven years old, if they're at a great reading level, they could pick the book up, and I would not be worried that there's information in the book that um, could be disturbing for them. Right, right. And so the question then is why you wanted to do a separate version for kids. And I'm guessing because this is such an important message, really, that one person can make a difference in someone else's life. A very, very, very significant difference. And the the sooner we learn that in life, the better, really. Is, is that why you were, why you well, wanted to write this? Well, absolutely, Vicki, you're, you're so, so much on the mark. You know, I wish that I could say that I was so brilliant when the book came out that I wanted to actually target schools. But I'm very proud to say that the book um, organically just started to um, go into schools. And there's now it's now part of the core curriculum, and teachers use it as part of a teaching tool on the power of small acts of kindness and how we can all make a difference in the life of another person. And so... An Invisible Thread, the big book, is primarily used in high schools, and also it's been a lot of um, freshman-wide reads. Right, right. I've done some speaking with middle schools, but it's much more where the teacher is reading the book with uh, to the children and basically, again, pulling out any information that is not appropriate for them. And parents would ask me all the time, how old, you know, can my child be that I could, you know, give them this book? And I have always said that my cutoff age is really 13, that anything under 13, I really highly recommend the parent read the book first or they read the book with the child. Mm -hmm. But at under 13, I don't recommend that you just give the book to a child and have them read it. Right. And because schools were constantly requesting and asking, is there a possibility that you might even, you know, do this for this middle school age? In two, I guess it was in 2017, I really started to seriously think about it and um, kind of put the whole thing into work. So it kind of happened naturally. And last week I did speak at four schools. And the idea that these children can read the book, it just takes my breath away and they are so adorable, and I have talked about how children are never too young to right. be able to start to teach them to be kind right. and to talk about how they can all make a difference. So even in the Young Readers edition, in the back of the book, there's a list of simple acts of kindness that children can incorporate into their, into their days. And, you know, when I spoke even last week, you know, I kind of present them with the, the idea that if we could all just do one small act of kindness a day, imagine how much kindness we could put out there. Yes, I think it's a great idea because the the, the adult book, as you say, would be too much. Um, I, I remember years ago um, when I was a kid, Laura, and our prince, we, we used to have readings at assembly in the morning and our principal read to us, the um, it w- I think it was called Black Just Like Me, and it was this true story of a journalist who put on blackface, if you will, to go into South Africa in apartheid times to write about what it was really like. He went under mm-hmm. disguise. And, of course, it was full of profanity and, and horrible racial slurs. And my headmistress 
adapted it as she read it out to us in the morning. And then I was quite horrified when I when I grew up and bought the book for myself. I was really quite horrified at some of the, you know, the shift in that. So I think it's a great idea to have a young reader's uh, version there. Um, so I want to go back just a little to Morris's the, when you when you two first met. Sure. And, you know, he's an 11 year old boy. And you say that, you know, he stopped and uh, he asked you for change. And you, your initial reaction is no, you go to walk by. And what was it that made you stop and turn around and say, well, I'm not going to give you money, but I'll, you know, can I buy you something to eat? Well, I can, I can say from the beginning, I, I really wasn't paying attention. And I talk about all the time how, you know, sometimes we're all in our own worlds and we're just kind of doing our own thing. And sometimes if we can pause for a moment and open up our eyes and hearts to our surroundings, we can receive the most beautiful blessings. With that said, um, I did say no. But then what registered really for me was the fact that he said he was hungry. And I thought, this is a kid. So I went back to him and I said to him, listen, you're just a child. I said, I don't want to give you any money. I said, but if you're hungry, I said, I'll take you over to McDonald's and I'll get you something to eat. And he hesitated for a moment. He tells me, you know, early on when I first suggested that, he just wanted the money just so he could go buy what he wanted. <laughs> right. As right. we were walking to McDonald's, <laughs> He started to negotiate with me. He said, well, can I have a Big Mac? And I said, well, sure. He had quite a feast, actually, didn't he? He did. He said, can I have French fries? I said, absolutely. He said, well, what about a Diet Coke? I said, you can have a Diet Coke. He said, could I have a fish shake? I said, you can have anything you want. I would just like to join you. And when I ended up seeing him on Thursday night, and we went out to dinner again, and that's when I suggested that we go out to dinner the following Monday night. And I said, if you'd like, I'll take you to the Hard Rock Cafe. And he gave me this big smile, and then he asked if he could wear the clothes that he had on because they were the only clothes he owned. But on Monday night when he arrived, his burgundy sweats were clean, his face sparkled, and I could tell that he you know, did everything he possibly could to be dressed for this very special occasion, and that night he had a huge steak. But the turning point in our friendship was about five weeks later when I just thought it would be nice to make him a home-cooked meal, so I invited him to my apartment. Well, Maurice was really sure that this was the night that he would find out what I really wanted from him. So in the in the big book, yes, because I talk you talk about, about how, trust, right, and well, how he yeah. trusted nobody because right. Nothing. And how he had a box cutter in his pocket. Yeah. Now, of course, in the children, and, and he actually at the time stole that box cutter from Dwayne Reed. <laughs> so in the children's book, I do not mention that he had a box cutter in his pocket. So it's things like that that I was careful about. But as he sat on the couch, I could tell that he was scared. And I said to him, you know, I just want to have a very serious conversation with you. And he kind of like was waiting for like the shoe to drop. And I said, the reason why I've invited you my, to my home is because I consider you a friend. But I want you to make sure you understand if anything's ever missing from my apartment, we'll no longer be friends. And he looked at me with this very puzzled expression. I said, do you understand what I'm saying? He says, you want to be just my friend at this? I said, well, of course. And he stood up, he put his hand out, and he said, Miss Laura, a deal is a deal. And that handshake that night solidified our friendship, and we are we had dinner not last week, but the week before, 33 years later. And whenever we get together, we pick up from where we left off, and we still have this incredible bond. Right. And this, 
invisible thread connection. Right. So I want to get into that, but we do need to take a quick break. As soon as we come back, uh, I want to jump straight into that invisible thread and how this connection has kept going for 33 years. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. My guest is Laura Schroff and her book, An Invisible Thread. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. You know, despite the bad news we hear every day, there are people and organizations focused on making a difference. And one of those organizations is right here, the Seattle Beagle Rescue. It's dedicated to saving homeless beagles, placing them with loving, committed families. Beagles arrive at Seattle Beagle Rescue from shelters, from the streets, and from private homes. And because it's a volunteer-run organization, they depend entirely on the kind hearts and generosity of the community. Learn how you can make a difference by helping to save beagles, go to Facebook at Seattle Beagle Rescue or call 425-381-3792. That's 425-381-3792. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to the Academy of Canine Behavior, we cover the world of animals. This week, May 19th, it's an Encore Vet Sunday with Dr. Margot Roman, an integrative vet from New England. She's been treating Pluckner syndrome for years, does chiropractic acupuncture, homeopathy, herbs, and lectures worldwide on her groundbreaking work. We talked about general vet stuff and lots about Pluckner syndrome. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. On the next Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair, Jared Yates Sexton examines a sensitive hot-button topic in today's culture with his new book, The Man They Wanted Me to Be, Toxic Masculinity and a Crisis of Our Own Making. We'll end the show on a different note with award-winning writer Jody Helmer, who shares how to grow and harvest flavorful teas in your own backyard. Catch us live on Mondays at noon Pacific and again Fridays at 6 a.m. Find more details at conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Listeners trust the show and advertisers love the audience. Learn more at conversationslive.net. You found us. Maybe you've been guided to listen. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. And my guest in this segment is Laura Schroff, her new book, An Invisible Thread. And I should explain there is an original invisible and invisible thread, which is the adult version. And now this is the young readers version because it has an important message. And that message all began or the story all began uh, on one rainy afternoon on a crowded New York City street corner when 11 year old Morris met Laura and asked if she could spare some change. And she said, no, but I will take you for something to eat. And 33 later, 33 years later, they still have um, an incredible connection there. So I wanted, um, when we come, when we came back, I wanted to dive straight into invisible thread um, because that's a, it's, is it a Chinese proverb it originates from? Yes, it's an ancient Chinese proverb. And so it means what exactly? An invisible thread um, means an invisible thread connects those who are destined to meet, regardless of time, place, and circumstance. The thread may stretch or tangle, but it will never break. Mm, I love that. And so yeah. at some point, I mean, you got very close with Morris. You um, would meet uh, weekly and discuss all kinds of things. You told him when you'd met a man you were interested in, and then you eventually fell in love with that man, and you get, you're going to get married and move away. What was it like telling him that you were moving away? Because it seems that you were really the 
the the only significant person who'd really made a big difference in a positive way in his life at that point. That was probably the most bittersweet part of meeting Michael and moving, having to tell him. But, you know, Maurice was really this sweet, sweet person. And he looked at me and he said to me, you know, he said, it's about time that you're going to have someone who's going to help take care of you. And it just so happened at the same exact time, his mother was able to get an apartment in Brooklyn. And we actually moved the same weekend. But in the story, I he was planning to move that weekend. And then his mother was arrested. And it, the story goes on of how he ultimately did not move and then later on did. Even though I moved to White Plains, we still kept our Mondays going. But I have to say that it it, it did change the dynamics. It wasn't as easy. You know, he wasn't coming over to my apartment to have dinner. So things did change. And that was very hard for him. And it was very hard for me. Yeah. He'd never experienced Christmas until uh, you you met him. And he had his first Christmas at your home. Mm -hmm. Yes. He spent Christmas at my family, my sister Annette's house on Long Island. And um, he ended up tucking a little white teddy bear with a red heart that he'd received the the year before when he went to the Salvation Army to spend Christmas by himself to be around other people. And when I came home from my sister's house, unbeknownst to me, he had tucked the teddy bear underneath the tree and with a note. And there's actually a children's book out. It's An Invisible Thread Christmas Story. It came out in 2014. And that targets children ages four to eight. But it talks about how sometimes it's the children who have the least amount that are willing to give the most. Yeah, I think that's so true. You know, I think I, I watch a lot of uh, documentaries and um, over the years I've had films, the friends who've gone out to film in places like Africa where they literally have to walk miles to get to school with no shoes and, you know, barely any clothes. And those kids are always nothing but great big smiles on their faces. You don't see them pouting and throwing little temper tantrums. Uh, Even in the raw footage, I've never seen that. So um, I think there's a lot of truth in that. So what is is Morris doing now? What's he doing now? Well, he, believe it or not, he's 45, so you can only imagine how old I am. (laughs) He just had his birthday a couple of weeks ago. And he's a partner in all of my books which is wonderful, and um, he actually is an Uber driver. And the thing that I'm most proud about, and people don't sometimes understand how hard it is for people to break cycles of poverty, drugs, and violence. And he's married to Michelle. They've been married for 20 years. They've been together for 25. And his children will never know from drugs, alcohol, abuse, and most importantly, hunger. They broke that cycle, and his children's children will even be that much further removed from it. Yeah. And he um, is actually going for his associates um, with Bible school. So he's just this really wonderful father. I always say that Michelle's the one that's the sergeant. <laughs> you don't want to mess with Michelle, and Maurice is the softy. That's really lovely. Um, he's, he says um, I, he considers his childhood a gift. He said 
as hard as it was, it taught him the right way to raise his own children. He saw what his father did, uh, what he might have grown up to be, um, thinking was the only way to be a dad because we copy our parents, right? Of course. Um, uh, But then I met you. You met you, Laura, and you taught me there was another way. It's pretty amazing uh, that it, I mean, it it really is a legacy to leave beyond everything else that you've done in your busy and successful life. Um, It's quite amazing. What's the, what's been the key takeaway for you, Laura? Well, the key, you know, people always say, people used to say to me all the time that Maurice was so lucky to have met me. And I would always say that I was so lucky to have met Maurice because one of the big things that Maurice gave me was the sense of forgiveness. You know, I, too, as I mentioned before, came from a very volatile childhood. And Maurice actually taught me forgiveness. He helped me appreciate the childhood that I did have. Um, he opened up my eyes and hearts to, and heart to a world that I never would have been familiar with. And so I always say that whatever Maurice, I gave to Maurice, he gave me back tenfold. Mm. You know, I don't have children of my own. So he is really the son that I never had, and his, you know, children. They don't really they don't call me grandma, which is good, (laughs) (laughs) but they call me Auntie Lori, and you know, I were actually received a family because of a small act of kindness. Yeah, you know, and I, and now I speak all over the country on the power of small acts of kindness. And how we can all make a difference in the lives of others. Mm. And I feel so enormously blessed to have this opportunity to make a difference. Right. Well, it's a very significant difference that you've made. And as you said uh, to yourself, I mean, a great gift for you to watch this uh, person grow. A wonderful gift for Morris and his family, because now he can leave a better legacy And, of course, to the young people that you're speaking to as you go around the country, uh, talking at schools and libraries. So um, great, great job. Thank you. Thank you so much, Vicki. I really appreciate it. And if people would like to know more about my books, they can visit my website, you know, um, lauraschroff.com. And Schroff is spelled S-C-H-R-O-F-F. Yes, that's correct. lauraschroff.com. Yes. And um, there are some pictures up here as well from uh, of both you and Morris from 1986 through 2019. <laughs> He's grown into quite a tall man because he, and, and the first picture you're taller than him, and the last picture he uh, he's definitely a lot taller than you. <laughs> um, so you can find out more at laurashroff.com. We really are at the end of the show, so I got to run. See you next week. Until then, live well, live strong. Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today.